0: book of Mark today, verses 29 through 39, and this is enjoyable for me. I hope it is for you to basically work through a book of the Bible. Next week, uh, we have a relief pitcher coming in here. Todd Erickson's going to take the next message in this series, and I hope you're ready, brother. He's over here today, so be strong. Take good care of yourself. I need a break. Next, next Sunday, I'm not up here. You are. So it's either you or... I don't know. Maybe it'll be my son Matthew over there, but it won't be me. So, all right. I'm, uh, I'm going to take a little break here next week. So we are at verse 29, and we're going to go through 39, just these verses uh, today. And some of you have been with us for the series already. Healing Hands, that's the, uh, the little backdrop I've got for a PowerPoint uh, slide. I think that really fits well with the message. The Heart of the Healer is the title I've picked today, Mark 1:29 through 39. Think of the healing hands of your Savior today, the healing hands of Jesus. Here's the, verse, the verses, starting verse 29. And immediately, that great word that Mark likes to use, immediately, immediately, immediately. Immediately he left the synagogue, that place that Jesus had been teaching with authority and where he had just performed an exorcism. He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, Another name for Peter, Simon Peter, and Andrew with James and John. If you have been to Capernaum, you know that this is a very short walking distance. You've probably walked it. If you've been there with us or if you've been there on other trips, it's probably a distance of, oh, maybe the span of, maybe double the length, maybe, of this sanctuary. If the, uh, if the synagogue were or the church parking lot, we could walk maybe double the length of this sanctuary and we would be at Peter's house and it's still there today. There's a church built over it with a, a glass-bottomed uh, floor in it, and it's, it's suspended above the ancient ruins of Peter's house. So you can go into this building. I could have put a picture up here for you, but you could go into this structure that's built over Peter's house with the glass floor, and you can look down below it, and you can see the, the basically the, di- not the diagrams, the actual partitions, the rooms of this house that Jesus had walked into, which was Peter's house. Uh, the one that is referred to here in this story. So it's very close. They left the synagogue. They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. What do you think? Did they have maybe an agenda in telling Jesus about her? They had just begun to see that he indeed had some pretty amazing power. He had just taught with incredible authority. He had just driven a demon out of an individual. Oh, here's a sick woman, one they love. I'm sure by this point they're seeing that Jesus is a man not only of immeasurable power, but of compassion. And I think personally they had an agenda to see if he might heal her, if he would pray for her or do something. And of course he did, didn't he? Verse 30 Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. There's that word immediately again. And he came, Jesus came and took her by the hand. And he lifted her up. One thing about the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, is they were instantaneous. He didn't have to say, uh, hocus pocus. Let's see if this works. Uh, say this ten times. See if this will heal you. Uh, I'm gonna, I am gonna hope this works. I'm going to say this prayer over you. No, he just touched. He just said, be healed. He just said, walk. He said what he said, and it was done. He came. He took her by the hand. He lifted her up. The fever left her. And look at the next line. And she began to serve them. That is telling you, that's a clue in the text, that she not only felt a little better, she was whole. She got up as though nothing happened. She began to serve them. She felt better than you do right now on this beautiful sunny morning with 30 below windshield or whatever it is. Some of us are still cold. I was shoveling last night. I think I'm still cold from being outside. Man, that's cold. But she began to serve them. It's telling you, Mark is saying, she's 100% like that. That evening at sundown, and this, this miracle of healing led to something else. Word gets out. Good news travels fast. That evening at sundown, which was the end of, sundown would be the marker of the end of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, on the Jewish Sabbath, the Jews could do no work, right? So Marcus, is telling you here, there's a clue here. At sundown, they could move about with work. They could labor again. They could transport ill people. Uh, they could carry them. They could do any kind of, of labor. So at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick. They could hardly wait for the sun to go down because it's like, let's bring every sick person we can find to this guy. And that's what they began to do. When the Sabbath had ended, is it's another way of saying, when the Sabbath ended, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Anybody that had a problem, they said, let's see if, what, what he can do. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. It's not suggesting there that there were some that he didn't, or it would say that. But of course, it's not, it's not even intimating that. It's, it's an inclusive statement. And he would not permit the demons to speak. They knew him. And if there's one thing Jesus didn't need is the recognition or the, not the accolades, but the, anything from an evil, an evil spirit. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, so he worked into the night, we don't know how much sleep he had, it wasn't much, he rose early in the morning, and he departed, and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, that's Peter, another name for Peter, and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, and there's a sense of desperation here. Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's hurry back and let's go back to work and what we were doing. No, Mm -mm. he wasn't a busybody, and he didn't need the press of the crowds to make him feel good. He wasn't after the fame or the focus of the people. He said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. There's a lot in there. We're going to unpack that here bit by bit. But going back to the beginning briefly, this book of the Bible opened up with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Shortly after introducing Jesus publicly for the first time, John the Baptist announces the reason that the Messiah came in the words that you see on the screen. And I'm listing uh, listing the words as they came out of the mouth of John the Baptist as they were presented to us in the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the purpose of Jesus coming. It wasn't miracles, although he did miracles. The reason Jesus came wasn't for uh, healing, healing people. The diseases that he healed was significant. We just read about the, the miracle of uh, healing in the case of Peter's mother-in-law. But Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus didn't come to bring the world free health care. Jesus didn't come to just to pronounce judgment on the oppressed uh, demons, the oppressive demons. He certainly showed them up. He showed, showed his power over them. But he came, in his own words... Luke 19.10 says it this way, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, the communion table in front of us today is this rather stark reminder that Jesus came to spill his blood. For what? For the sins of the world. For For the sins of humanity. That all who would believe in him, put their faith in him, would live a life of, of, of hope, would live a life of encouragement, would live a life of forgiveness, knowing that we can live in the light of God's grace and favor, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of our sins and we're forgiven, a forgiven people, we have right standing with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and, and we don't have to live our lives in fear, that we can live life daily in, in hope and in joy, if you'd have been standing there when John the Baptist made that great profession about Jesus. When he, if you'd have been there on the Jordan River uh, sides, the, 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 the riverside, and heard this, here he is, the Lamb of God, this public uh, proclamation, what do you think you'd have been expecting next uh, from Jesus? I think your expectations would have been pretty high. Mine would have been pretty high. What would have been your expectations of Christ? Probably this, Kingdom power. You'd have been. You wouldn't have been sitting there. Oh, that's great! There he is, the Messiah. He's been prophesied about for hundreds of years. I'm going to go back and read the paper now, see what's going on in uh, the Galilean times today. I'm going to go back to Nazareth, see what's going on there. I don't think you'd have done that. I think you'd have said, "Well, let's see what he's going to do. What is he going to do? What is he going to say?" I think you'd have said, "To stand and deliver." Time. What does the Messiah do? What's predicted about him? The expectations would have been obviously very high. And for him to be truly the Messiah, I think we would say this. If he's who John says he is, he must have the ability to reverse the curse. Our forefathers, in fact our first parents, Adam and Eve, were told that if they would eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die that they would be cursed, that humanity would be cursed, that the earth itself would be cursed. This Messiah must have the ability to reverse that somehow. He must have to have, he's got to have power over demons and over disease, because we are in trouble. Humanity is in trouble, and if he's the Messiah, the true Messiah that he is now proclaimed to be, he better have ability to turn this situation around. And Jesus had begun to demonstrate both, didn't he? As we've been reading here in Mark's Gospel. And here's the great news. His success rate was perfect, if you've been with us in this series. He didn't get into debate matches with the demons, and sometimes he won and sometimes they won. He always won. And when it came to healing, as we begin to see here, he just won. The diseases didn't win. And so here's where we left off last week, those two verses on the screen. The people said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And yet, let me touch pause here. Simply being amazed at Jesus as people were then doesn't save anybody. We can be amazed at a lot of things. People will be amazed today, at least I hope they will be, at the some of the plays in the big game. But five or ten years from now, a lot of people won't remember that game. Maybe less time than that. We get amazed easily, but we're pretty fickle as people. Jesus did a lot of amazing work in the city of Capernaum. It was the base of operations for him in the Galilee region. And yet later in his ministry, he pronounced a woe on that city. Look at this passage from Matthew's gospel. I find this amazing in my own way. Look at this. And you, Capernaum, this is him speaking. Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have it would have remained until this day. Please think with me about this for a minute. Capernaum, as we said earlier in the series, was our Lord's base of operations. It was like his HQ. His headquarters in the Galilee region, which is where he did two-thirds of his three-year earthly ministry. He did a lot of big stuff there. Not a, th- not a three-ring circus, but real miracles, like the ones we're reading about in these in the first chapter of the book of Mark. He's going to do a lot more as we read on here. And yet, when we look, if we want to read ahead, if we want to jump ahead to the end of the story, you know, you know what happens. He winds up on a cross. The religious aristocracy rejects him. They don't don't believe he's the Messiah, in spite of all he does. Even after he raises back to life, they don't believe on him. The masses of people who once celebrate him on that Palm Sunday and celebrate him and say, Hosanna, you know, Hosanna to the son of David, many of those same people days later cry out, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but but Caesar. And they deny him as their Messiah. And he's ridiculed and he's spat upon. He comes to his own and his own receive him not. Isn't that just a bit ironic? And so he says, basically, what you read there, he says, my works testify against you. To the people of that day. He says, you've seen all of this and because you reject me, he says, it will be better for Sodom than it will be for you on the day of judgment. My question is this, are are we amazed at Jesus or are we his disciples? Let's not just be amazed at Jesus or intrigued by Jesus. You know, whenever the unclean spirits encounter Jesus in the book of Mark, they know his identity and they're terrified of him. Why? They know he's the son of God and they know that they will be judged by him. And yet the people in the, that encounter Jesus, though they're amazed at him for a moment, they remain, many of them remain largely uncommitted. Demons cannot be saved. They cannot be forgiven. They know that judgment awaits them. People can be saved and yet, and they're offered forgiveness and yet then and even today they will often reject it. And so the same fate awaits both. Is that not sad and ironic? You hear people today say, oh Jesus was this great moral teacher. Oh Jesus was this and he was that. And those little questions glib statements that don't give him the true recognition as who he really is, the one true son of God, the king of kings, the, the Messiah, the one he's claimed to be in the scriptures, the one he himself said that he is, anything that denies his true divinity and his deity that, that puts him to be something less but sounds kind of rosy is really blasphemous. It's denying who he really is. It's a rejection of who he really is. And it's it's more than foolish, it's dangerous. And it dooms people to a fate that's the same fate as the demons are gonna have, judgment. Let's not be amazed by Jesus. Let's be saved by Jesus. Let's not downplay Jesus as some wonderful teacher from history, as a great moral teacher. That doesn't save anybody. Mark wants us to see Jesus as more than a miracle worker delivering free health care. He's more than a demon deliverer, but he's a man of compassion. He's a man of prayer. He's a man on a mission to save us from ourselves. And we need him. And unless we have a deep association with his body and his blood, we're in big trouble. We're in in deep doo-doo unless we have a deep association with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we're in trouble. We can't just have a little fix of Jesus. Like that book, Not a Fan, says. Let's not just be fans, but we need to be followers. We need a deep association with him. So there's our key text today, which we've already begun to look at. And now let's take a little deeper look at the compassion. Because I think we can miss this as believers. We can see see him as a man of compassion at maybe a superficial level, but I want to take a little deeper look today, a brief but but deeper look. Jesus understands our suffering at a level that I don't know that we, probably, we need to see it a little deeper. And I hope that this is a great encouragement to you. I'm going to go just a tish beyond our, our passage today. If you just jump over a few verses beyond, I'm going to steal a verse from where Todd is preaching next week, but just one verse, verse 41, to the leper passage. Look at just verse 41 to the first three or four words. It says that Jesus was moved with what? Hopefully you're looking at that. What's the word? Compassion. Some translations also say pity. So he has compassion. There it is. It's declared in the scriptures, Jesus has compassion. He has pity. One of the terrible things that the father of lies, Satan, says to us, tells us about God, is that God doesn't care about you. One of the tragedies that I frankly have to deal with as a pastor is, is helping people undo the lies that they have heard from the evil one. And maybe it's been their own hearts sometimes because our hearts can deceive us. But I've met with people who have believed lies that they're not worth anything and that, and that God doesn't love them and that they should end their life. And it's just, it, it's terrible to listen to the the hurtful things that people have done to themselves or try to do to themselves because they have believed the lie that nobody cares. They really believe it. And when you tell them, as a person who cares about them, at least a little, and God cares about them infinitely more, when you tell them, no, God made you in his own image. You, you, You cannot destroy the image of God. You're made in the image of God. Don't desecrate the image of God. You're made in his image. Don't destroy that. You're made in his image. Think of that. You and I don't have a right to destroy the image of God that is within us. As, as broken as we might feel, as fallen as we are, as full of warts as we might be in, our, in, our, in who we might be, we, we bear the image of God, the Scripture says, and so we don't have a right to destroy it. And as much as I can appeal to somebody to do that, if they believe the lie of the evil one, that they're worthless, they, 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 they really, it's hard to get them out of that. And I want you to see together, all of us, to see how much Jesus pities the hurts, the suffering of human, of humanity. He just does. There's no question about that. There's many scriptures we could point to, but I want you to just to see that one as a starting point. He also grieves over the effects of what sin does to us. He hurts over the effects of sin, what sin causes us, how it causes pain in our lives. In John chapter 11, we see the story of the loss of a friend of Christ's, and that is the the loss of a friend called Lazarus. And you see Jesus grieving, but you know why he's grieving? Sometimes we have mistakenly suggested that he grieves just over the pain of losing a friend. It says Jesus wept, the short verse there, Jesus wept. It wasn't just because his friend died. If you look at the Greek underneath that, it says that he and this is going to sound silly if you've not heard me preach through this one before, but it says that he snorted like a horse. It's what it means. He, it says that he was restless. It says Jesus' spirit was restless within him. And you could translate that loosely, saying he snorts like a horse. He was upset. It says he got angry. Why would he get angry? It was a righteous anger. It wouldn't have been sinful. He was angry over the cause, the consequences of sin, how sin brings death and separation, to loved ones, and to families. Think about that. The compassion of Jesus is so deep that he not only has pity for us and sympathy, he has sorrow for us, but he, is, he's, he feels frustration and anger, righteous anger, with sin over how it hurts us. That's what that text is saying. That's what that text is saying. In Romans 5.12, says the same thing. And he came to reverse it. He came to reverse that curse. He said, I'm tired of what sin is doing to these people that I love, and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna become a curse for them. I'm gonna reverse it. I'll take sin on myself so it stops imploding on them. I'm gonna become sin for them. Let that blow your mind. That's, that's 2 Corinthians five twenty one. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Blows my mind. Get your mind around that. That's how much God loves you. As he said, I'll let my son become sin so you don't have to keep getting beat up by it. And thirdly, then, this one's beautiful. This, this one's equally incredible. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. Matthew 8.17 is the corollary, rather parallel passage to the passage we're looking at in Mark. This is Matthew's uh, exposition of the exact same event, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Only Matthew is tying in a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, and if you unpack Isaiah 53, it's talking about the healing of, of our diseases and our infirmities, not just on a physical plane, But it's foreshadowing our ultimate physical and spiritual healing, i.e., our future estate in glory when we have a new body. Wrap your mind around this one. The healings of Jesus foreshadow the day when we will receive our resurrection body, that one that won't decay, the one that will be free from sin disease, and the threat of death. So when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, we say that's powerful. You know what? That's small potatoes. That's a foreshadowing event of what Jesus is going to do in the lives of every single person, man, woman, and child who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to do way beyond that. The Bible says he's going to make all things new. He's going to recreate our, the Bible says, our our mortal body must put on that which is incorruptible. He's going to give you a whole new body which cannot decay. Man, doesn't that sound good? And, and, and death can't get it. And, it. and it's not subject to disease. He will heal all diseases. Disease will not get it anymore. So we're not talking about this life anymore. We're talking about the next one. And so the healings of Jesus, as you read about them in the New Testament, are foreshadowing the ultimate healing of your body, your soul your eternal being before the throne feel a little hope there that's what it's pointing to nothing less than that nothing less than that jesus is the ultimate healer of your heart and your life your mind your whole person is he worthy of all of you of all of all you could give him of all of your hope of all of your worship we got to move on in our text You better believe it. He's worth it for everything we could ever offer to him for all he is to us. Jesus, the Messiah, a man empowered by prayer. We can take it for granted that that he, he prayed, but do you know that he needed to pray? He needed to pray. He's the Messiah, but he needed to pray. Because we as Christians sometimes neglect the fact that though he was divine, he was fully human too. And he needed to pray. We look at the text here and it says this. It says, verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Would he have done that if he didn't need to? Would the Son of God have done anything if he didn't need to? He had the Spirit of God upon him, and he prayed. And the spirit of, he was submissive to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God led him. And prayer is, was the power behind what Jesus did. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. In fact, we know that the disciples later asked him, Lord, teach us to what? Help me? Pray. As far as we know, they never said, Lord, teach us how to do evangelism. Lord, teach us how to preach. Lord, teach us how to whatever. They might have asked him that, but it's not recorded in the Bible. But we do know that they did ask him this one. Lord, teach us to Why did they do it? Because they saw it. They saw him doing it. And so he said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave him the disciples' prayer. So we know that was important. And here's the application. If he needed to pray, that simply suggests we can't afford to neglect it. And I have to give you a simple but earnest plea or pitch to join us for some of these upcoming Saturdays where we're going to take this little prayer guide that we've been well, we've been promoting these for years. Some of you have used this Seek God for the City guide. We're probably out of these now, but you can still get these. We're going to start using these soon. You can still get one, or you can go on the, online for 99 cents. You can get one on one of your devices. And it's even better because you get more than the guide. You get a, some other dev, other features with this. But the Minot Ministerial has been meeting uh, for these last weeks. We hosted two months of prayer here for pastor, pastor's prayer. And we've been talking about what are we doing as pastors in the community to help the Christian community engage prayer together. And we looked at ourselves quite honestly. And, and can I be frank? I think you'd let me be frank. I feel like we got some egg on our face. We're not doing enough. We are not doing anything, if we're really frank and candid, to, to humbly lead the people, the believers of this community, to seek God together. Oh, well, you know, we can all order some, some of these little books and put them out at our information tables. Well, that's, in, that's a big gift to you. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that's what we've done? I'm embarrassed to say that's what we've done. Uh, that doesn't, that's nothing. And so we're going to go a little bigger than that, and we are going to be putting together Saturday prayer meetings from, from really the dates you see there through the begin, to the beginning of summer. And First Baptist is the lead church where we're inviting people from the Christian community in Minot to come here on Saturday mornings for shepherd-led prayer meetings. And we'd love you to come. We just want to be together to pray. And, and when we pray, it's going to be about more than a... The little things that we can sometimes find ourselves praying about take me well here. I'm not going to say we shouldn't be praying about uh, Aunt Bessie's broken ankle and Uncle Joe's busted toe, and but some of those things are what we call organ recitals. We come together. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting and we just pray about organs? I don't suggest that those things don't matter. They do matter. And there will be time for those kinds of prayers before and after the prayer meetings that this is about. There they they really will be. I'm not saying that to be uh, cute. But we want to pray bigger prayers than that. I think that the agenda of heaven is, is not just about that. I, think that. I think the agenda of heaven is about big things. Like, God, help us to grow in true holiness, not in worldliness. God, help our city the people of our city, to care about who you are and not to just go off into the darkness before you come back. God, help us to love our neighbor the way you want us to love our neighbor and to serve our neighbor. God, help us to have compassion in the way Jesus would have compassion. God, help us to be forgiving people the way you're forgiving. God, help us to know your heart and and to, to have your agenda for this church and not to think we understand it. Help us to truly know it. There's all kinds of of bigger agenda prayers that we want to get after. And when we pray with people that are beyond the circle of just believers in this church, we're going to go deeper. We just will. So we're pretty excited about this, and I just invite you to be a part of that. Christ modeled prayer. He needed prayer. And then the last thing I want to say before we move forward to communion today is that Jesus was a man on a mission, and you knew that, but I really want you to see here the, the priority here of Jesus, the priority we can't miss this, the last part of this passage here. You know, the disciples, they were kind of panicky as they found him. He'd been away praying. And you know, when they found him, he wasn't like one of these worldly teachers who said, oh, man, that was pretty great. You know, I had a, had a great night last night. I got a lot of attention. All these people kept coming, and I was healing them, and I want to go back and have more, more ministry. I'm pretty popular over here. He wanted nothing to do with that. His main mission... Again, wasn't offering health care. Again, not that that didn't matter. His main mission was preaching the gospel. And so verse 38, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He still continued to heal. He still continued to cast out demons. But he wasn't about just those activities of miracles and healings. And if you jump back with me in chapter 1 to verses 14 and 15, I want you to see how he stayed centered on the mission. This is where it began. Go back with me to verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1. It says that after John the Baptist was arrested, John the baptizer, it says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled. This is mission. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's not healing, per se, although that would be included. That'd be underneath of it. That's not running out demons out of town, although that would be included. But the main thing is the main thing. And so here it is. Here's our application. As a church, There's a lot of things we can get involved with here, but we have a mission statement that we believe is the right one for this day. It's winning, it's building, it's sending, and if we start getting involved in things that don't relate to that, we need to get rid of them. Now, I don't see anything at the moment, personally, that doesn't fit into that, that we're doing. But if somebody comes up with an idea and it doesn't fit into win, build, send, we can say that's a neat idea, but we're going to let somebody else run after that. We're not doing that. We We want the mission to be the mission. We have to be focused on what we believe is Christ's mission for this church, without apology. Let's let the priority of the mission be the mission. We are here to represent Christ in our community. And that takes, that takes a few different forms. There's a lot of ways we do it, actually. But we're here to preach the gospel, and not to get off track. I want you to read this with me. As those who are serving communion, if you'd please come. As the rest of us read this together, what's on the screen? Think about the words as you read these. Let's say this together. Around us are the immortal souls of men and women. The Savior, unseen, is beside us. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. Angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. What associations and what vast responsibility!